It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. One of the longest-running TV shows in history has been the TV, or is the TV show, I guess, or it was, entitled Law and Order. And the truth of the matter is this, that most of us have heard it, and I don't know about you, but I kind of love just that opening narration. I like the guy who does the voiceover. I love the manliness and the depth of his voice and I hear his voice and I covet. I don't really covet a lot of things, but um, that voice I covet because I listen to him. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I listen to myself and I think that I could probably get hired at Disneyland to be Mickey Mouse voiceover guy. You know, I just feel that way. But he starts out like this, or it starts out like this, I should say. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups the police who investigate crime, and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. You got to thinking about our text this morning, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through verse number 20, and I rewrote it for the Christian, and this is what I wrote. In the eternal judgment of life, you are accountable to the word of God, and you will be judged by God. This is your story. In the eternal judgment of life, you are accountable to the word of God, And you will be judged by God. This is your story. What Paul is about to go into. Well, we know from the context of scriptures that Romans chapter 1, verse number 18 through Romans chapter 3, verse number 20, Paul is dealing with the great doctrinal matter of sin and the effect of sin in the life of the individual. Paul is dealing with that very, very clearly and very candidly. In chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, he is dealing primarily with the sin of the Gentile or the non-Jew. And the church at Rome to whom Paul is writing is comprised of two separate groups of people, primarily the Gentile and the Jew. We won't go into all all of that. We've done that many times, and for the sake of time today, I won't do that. But the first uh, through verse number 32, Paul is dealing with Gentiles. And then he comes to verse number, or chapter number two. And in chapter number two, Paul begins to deal with the Jews. Paul begins to deal with people who um, are of the tribe of Israel, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and they viewed themselves, if you will, as having a very high and lofty position. And yet Paul begins to bring to their uh, knowledge or their insight that they are indeed in the same situation as the Jews. But he internalizes, because he himself being a Jew, he internalizes their resistance and he establishes his case. And then we come to verse number nine, where Paul makes his concluding argument, where he says, what then, that verse two words in verse number nine of chapter three, what then, uh, are we better than they? The phrase what then is the introduction to his conclusion. Are we superior? Can the Jews claim to be better in life? than the Gentiles, and, and, and Paul is saying we've already formed um, formal legal charges where he says uh, where we have before proved, both Jew and Gentile, that they are all under sin. We, we, have, we have done this legal proceeding. We have proved this to be the case, that they are or all mankind is under sin. All mankind. We're all is the Greek word pos, totality, and we're all under sin. We're all faced with the reality that sin reigns over us. The Gentile and the Jew who don't put their faith in Jesus Christ have missed the mark of God's perfection in their life, and they are all guilty of sin. And verse number nine is really like a, a legal standing or a legal case that he is making. And then he comes to verse number 10. 
And this is where, in the little takeoff of the law and order introduction, we are accountable to the word of God. Paul says we are, in verse number 9, that we are all under sin. And he says, verse number 10, as it is written... The standard by which Paul writes this and the standard of judgment that Paul is talking to the people about is the Old Testament. It's the word of God that has already been written. It's the word of God that has already been delivered. Paul is not referring to, as some people might want to read into this, the first two chapters or the preceding words that he wrote in Romans, in the book of Romans so far. No, Paul is referring back to the entirety of the Old Testament that as it is written, or we will be judged based on what, whether Jew or Gentile, based on whether or not we follow. God's word. And then we come to the second part of verse number 10, all the way through verse number 12, and really all the way to verse number 18. And we see the indictment of the accused. Remember, this is a legal courtroom. If you were in court and you were standing before a judge or going to stand before a judge, the first thing that would happen during the arraignment process, this is how it would work here, is that your indictment is going to be read against you or the charges against you are going to be declared. Somebody is going to stand up and say, oh, we caught you going this many miles an hour. How do you plead? Or whatever the case may be, the indictment is going to be written or read rather. And here Paul gives us the indictment. This is the indictment of all mankind without Christ. No one escapes this indictment. Matter of fact, I I should preface this by saying, if you came today looking for a huge word of encouragement and looking to feel better when you left today, this is probably the wrong Sunday to come. So come back next Sunday, you'll feel well, well better. But since you're already here, pay attention. The indictment against us. The indictment against us is pretty clear. Notice what he says here in verse number 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Here's the first indictment. All mankind is evil. All mankind is evil. There is none righteous. There is none in right standing with God. There is none that have kept God's required rules. Paul is using the term righteous in his most basic sense of being right before God as being as God created man to be. And Paul says this, no one is in right standing with God. It's important to note that Paul is not saying that No one does anything commendable or even kind or morally right. That would be a grave misnomer if you thought that Paul was saying that. What Paul was saying is he's referring to a person's inner character, the inner man, and he says this, there has not been one person who has ever lived on this earth with a righteous inner character as required by God other than Jesus Christ. He's referring to your inner character. There is none righteous, no, not one. And, and we've, we've learned this before here at Canyon Ridge, the phrase no, not one. Paul is drawing attention to that. Remember that Hebrew writers don't have the ability to use an exclamation point or to draw emphasis. So what Paul is trying to say to them, it clearly by way of drawing emphasis to them, he, he would use a redundancy of thought or a redundancy of words or concepts. And he says, and he'll use this phrase no, not one or some facsimile thereof in the root Greek text and and he's going to use it six times and and he's helping us to understand that no one is free from what I am saying that this is for all mankind there is none righteous there is none in right standing with God no not one you might have come here and say "Whoa, whoa, whoa I come to church and I hear people judge me well be of good cheer we're judging all of us this morning Every one of us are in the same boat. You're no different than I am. I'm no different than you are. We are all being judged this morning. There is none righteous. No, not one. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21, talks about the lack of our righteousness. It says, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's not one person who has ever lived on this earth with a righteous inner character as required by God through other than Jesus Christ. He is the only one that we read about in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Take the most devout person you know, the most loving person you know. They are not in good standing with God. Why? Because their inner man is not righteous. Not even one. And God's standard is perfection. One commentator said this, as already noted, there are obviously vast differences among people as to their kindness, love, generosity, honesty, truthfulness, and the like. But not even one person besides Christ has come remotely close to righteous perfection, which is the only standard accountable to God. Righteous perfection, which is the only standard accountable to God. God's standard of righteousness for men is the righteousness that he himself possesses, which was manifest in Christ. Which is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48 on the Sermon on the Mount. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. To put it plainly, the person who is not as good as God is not acceptable to God. You say, well, I could never be as good as God. Right. Correct. We are born evil. That's the first indictment. Look at verse number 11. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Mankind is not only evil, mankind is spiritually ignorant. There is none that understandeth, understand to be wise in respect of duty to God, to be upright or righteous or godly. There is none that meets that criteria. Paul is quoting Romans chapter, uh, or I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 14, verse number two and three, where it says, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are together become unfilthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Even if mankind was righteous and could attain to God's level of righteousness, they would have no idea how to recognize it. They would have no idea what to do with it. Why? Because they are spiritually ignorant. And in a world that is constantly blame-shifting and defensive, I believe it's helpful to understand that the spiritual ignorance uh, that we have in our lives is not the fault of another person. The Apostle Paul helps us to understand that it's not somebody else fault that we are spiritually ignorant. It is my fault. Book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 18. The Bible says, having the, their under, the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. This willful spirit, spiritual ignorance is in all of us. And one of the many reasons why Romans chapter 1, verse number 20 says, we are without excuse. You and I are without excuse. There's no excuse to our spiritual ignorance. We're without it. That, that, and, and to be honest with you, all men are spiritually ignorant. I mean, that's what we're talking about. That's why Romans chapter 10, verse number 14 to 17, teaches very, very clearly that we are to be a people who share the gospel. If you know Christ, you have been commanded to share the gospel. Some people say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, that's good because it's not a gift. It's a requirement. It, it's, it's not something that you get to go, well, I'm not very good at it, so I don't do. No, no, no. You might not make eggs benedict well. You don't have to do it. But this is non-optional. I don't know where eggs benedict came from. I don't even eat it, but Whatever. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse number 14, how, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The, the, the spiritually ignorant person will never come to Christ on their own. It is imperative for the believer to share their testimony and to share their faith with the expectation that people will come to Christ. Well, I'll just 
you know, whatever will be, will be. That's not God's intent when it comes to being missional and taking the gospel to a lost and dying world. Men are spiritually ignorant. Number three, the third indictment against us, there is none that seeketh after God. The natural man is rebellious. The phrase seek after means to diligently, earnestly seek after God with a sincere, earnest desire to obtain his favor. Now, people throughout the world are pictured as as going to a religious service or going to a temple or praying to an idol. And some people want to argue, well, see, pastor, see, they're seeking after God. No, 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 they might be seeking after some sort of religious experience, but that is not the same thing as seeking after God. Well, how can you say it? Well, because the Spirit of Scripture says it. There's none that seeketh after God. And Paul again is quoting from Psalm 14, 2 and 3, which says, to see if there be any that did understand and seek after God. And the answer is no, they are all gone aside. They are together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And the Scripture repeatedly commands us to seek after God. If you're a believer here, you're to seek after God. And can I be honest with you, if you're not a believer here, if you've not put your faith and trust in Christ, you're commanded to seek after God. And Isaiah chapter 55, verse number six, is very clear about this, where it says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Amos chapter five, that little country preacher Amos The minor prophets in chapter 5, verse number 4 says, Thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. And Matthew chapter 6, verse number 33, the Bible says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We are commanded to seeking after God. But not seeking after God. People who don't seek after God don't do it unintentionally or accidentally. No, they do so because they have a rebellious heart. They fail to seek after God because they have, we have, I have, you have a rebellious heart. That's why God has to seek after us. It is God who convicts men of sin and righteousness and judgment and all that will come to the Father. It must be drawn by the Father. It's the Lord that does the drawing. No man, John 6, can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Not only is man rebellious, man is defiant. They are together become unprofitable. Verse number 12, they're all gone out of the way. Verse number 12, gone out of the way to turn aside, to avoid, to turn from following God's plan and God's desire. Isaiah chapter 53, verse number six, the scripture says, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord laid on Christ or him the iniquity of us all. We've gone astray. A path has been set. A plan has been made and we have done our own thing and we've done our own thing intentionally. Mankind has a natural inclination to do his own thing. He's defiant he is defiant. The other day in our daycare, my daughter Judith teaches the three-year-olds in our daycare, and I got word, I was in my office studying, and I got word that the three-year-olds had challenged me to a water fight. It was hot outside, and I was tired of being in the office with the church staff, and they're no fun, I can promise you that. And they've never challenged me to a water fight, not a single time in 18 years. And I thought, water fight with three-year-olds? It's on. So I came downstairs and we talked trash to each other, which, man, I yelled, you know, really funny statements. And they just stared at me, didn't care at all what I'm saying, started throwing water at me. So I grabbed the hose and I start spraying them. Why? Well, because I paid for the hose. So I start spraying them and we're having a good time and they're laughing. There's a few tears, but you couldn't really tell, but the water hitting them in the face so hard. And if you're watching online, I'm totally kidding. Not really. Um, no, we are just having fun and they're yelling, pastor, we're going to get you. And so I'd let them get me and then I'd get them. It was just a, a really fun experience. There's a lot of funny things happened. Well, it was time for me to go because I was losing. 
and uh, they had to go back into class. It was their water day, and they had to go back into class. And so I had hooked the hose on the fence with the nozzle facing the, the, the daycare playground area. And I was talking to some of the little kids, and there's one little boy, awesome little kid. He, he's, he, he's doing one of these. He's looking at me, and he's looking at the nozzle. And he's looking at me, and he's looking at the nozzle. And I'm just telling you, this kid is a terrible, deceitful person. And, and he's bad at his defiance because you could read his defiance because it's like they know they're not allowed to mess with the hose. And he's looking at the hose and he's looking at me and he's looking at the hose and, he's, and it's like this. And I'm watching now. Now I'm just seeing how long he's going to do this. And this went on for a good, what seemed like two hours is probably 15 seconds. We both have the same attention span. And so he's looking at me and I looked at him and I called him by name. I said, hey, don't mess with that. He said, oh, yes, pastor, yes, pastor. But he had no intent of listening to me. He's still looking at the hose. He knows the damage the hose can do because I kept nailing him with it. I mean, he was the big instigator in this whole deal, and we were having fun, and he's going to grab that hose, and he's going to spray me. And the reality is he probably couldn't. There's a fence between us. I would jump it, slip, break my ankle, and burn and be preaching today so we couldn't have any of that happening. And so I don't do it. Yes, Pastor, I won't, I won't do it. I won't do it. Okay, good. He's watching me, and I looked over. I, I kind of got distracted by one of the kids over here saying something funny or doing something, and I looked over, and here's that defiant little three-year-old grabbing that nozzle. Good thing he's weak. He's trying to squeeze it, and he couldn't. And I was like, hey! He said, oh, sorry. It kind of jumped in my hand, Pastor. Now, he didn't say that, but that's the words that were coming out of his eyes. He is, like the rest of us, defiant by nature. You say, well, how'd you feel about him? I saw myself. He's blonde, bigger kid, a good talker, manipulates people. I totally saw my wife. <sighs> he has a natural, we all have a natural inclination to do our own thing. So Proverbs 8, verse number 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy. Listen to this. And the evil way. What's the evil way? The way that takes you away from God. The natural direction or inclination of your own heart and life. The fear of God hates that. But if there is no fear of God, it loves it. That's its natural propensity. The natural man is not only defiant, the natural man in verse number 12 is spiritually useless. They have together become unprofitable. Together or at the same time. Read it this way. They are all gone out of the way. They are all deceitful. They're doing their own thing. And at the same time, they have become spiritually useless. Unprofitable, that's what it means, useless, vile incapable of functioning usefully. This word is often described in, in ancient Greek literature. It's often used to describe sour milk, rancid milk. You can't use it for anything. You can't make butter out of it. You can't make cheese. You can't do anything with it. Not too long ago, Debbie and I, well, in the month of August, we were in Hawaii. I preached at a church in Hawaii. Then we went on a couple-week vacation, beautiful island of Molokai. And, and I... Um, have a, a little refrigerator in my study up in my office and and um, some of the guys on staff they like creamer in their coffee but they I don't know how else to say it but they are a, well they like effeminate type creamers like French vanilla and cinnamon dolce latte flavors and peppermint mocha and I'm trying to think of the others like you know green salad puppy flavor I don't know it's just Stuff that no normal human would ever drink it. I don't know what they do with all of that stuff, but they, they go through bottles and bottles of that on a daily basis. Okay, maybe not a daily basis, but whatever. That's what they use. And I was raised uh, by a dad who drank black coffee only. That's all he ever drank. That's all we were ever allowed to, uh, not ever allowed, but that's all we ever had in the house. And so it was a big thing for me when I went to using heavy cream. I mean, I use heavy cream. I don't use half and half. I want heavy cream in my coffee. Why? Because number one, it tastes better. Number two, it has more fat and it's better for overall physical health. I'm trying to convince myself of. So 
that's what I use. Well, we were on vacation and I'm a spendthrift. So we come back from vacation and I have had some some now heavy whipping cream in uh, the refrigerator in my office. And it's been in there for any number of weeks, like five, six, seven weeks. And so I come back and this is what I'm thinking. Like, I'm gonna use that heavy cream, number one, because the alternative is like some French vanilla latte stuff. And I can't use that because I wasn't wearing a pink shirt. And <sighs> pastels are allowed. And I, I said, I'm, I'm not going to use that. I'll use this. And uh, I probably need some new cream, but this will probably be fine. So I opened it up and I smelled it. And I didn't, you know, you, you smelled sour milk. Like the first time I was like, whoa, that's really bad. But I like had to really breathe deeply to feel that way. Like I grabbed it and I smelled it like, oh, that's not very good. It'll probably be okay, though, because the alternative is French vanilla. So I thought, well, I don't want to ruin this really good cup of coffee that John made for me, so I'll just taste it. So I took it, and I went to taste it, and no lie, it came out in clumps, and I, like nothing came out, and then like this giant ball of sour cottage cheese landed in my mouth which didn't bother me just the concept. What, what bothered me more was the taste. And it was a taste that, well, if you've never tasted rancid sour milk, you should, because you will taste it. it it's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, I tasted it, I immediately ran to the, the restroom, spit it out in the trash, washed my mouth out with water. But even as I'm talking to you today, I'm retasting that. It is the gift that keeps on giving. And, and this word here that Paul uses, unprofitable, is exactly that. You don't even want to be around nasty. Like, this is what I thought. I closed the lid back up, and I thought, where could I throw this away? I don't want to throw it in my trash can, so I put it in Bernie's because I didn't want it anywhere near me. It's unprofitable. The natural man is spiritually useless, Without benefit, they're like a dead, dead branch on a tree. They don't produce fruit. They provide no shade. There's no value to them. In John 15, 6, Jesus said, if ye, abide in, if ye abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. The natural man offers no value to God. The second part of verse number 12, 12b there is none that doeth good, no, not one. The natural man is contaminated. There is none that doeth good. They do no good. They do no good in their inner man when compared to God. They don't do that. The word good means that which is upright and morally good. It's imperative to understand, as already been stated, that folks, there are folks who do things that are great compared to other human beings. They give to the poor. They help the homeless. They feed the needy. They pay rent for folks. They help with health care all over the world. They, they defend nations. There are things that people do that are gracious and morally good. But when compared to God, and God is indeed the standard... No human being has within himself either the desire or the capacity for good, the good of God that is holy and perfect and God-glorifying. The indictment continues with the conversation of the accused, the conversation, the way the accused talk in verse 13 and 14. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongue have they used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Why do words matter? Words matter because your words inevitably reveal your character. Jesus said to the Pharisees, O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil seek good things for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh? This is a very convicting thought that your words will eventually or inevitably reveal your character. The seventh indictment is given in verse number 13. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Fallen man is spiritually dead. The spiritually dead heart can only produce spiritually dead words. They are an open sepulcher, a tomb, a grave, a burial place, a place for decaying bodies of the dead. That is what they 
Psalm chapter 5, verse number 9 says, There is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Paul is quoting this verse here. They flatter with their tongue. Their speech is dead. And they use their speech not to give life, but rather to serve themselves. And just as a corpse begins to stink after being in the ground for a period of time, their words will eventually begin to stink to those around Their throat is an open sepulcher. If you've ever had a rodent die near your house or in one of your walls, you understand how putrefying decaying flesh can be. That's what God is talking about, their words. Their, with their tongue, they've used deceit. Not only are they spiritually dead, but they're deceitful, verse number 13. Their tongue, they use deceit. The word deceit means to attract by bait, to use deceit, to deceive, to use bait, to get what you want, to say one thing, to get what you want, to be deceit-filled. If you were to go fishing, it's an easy illustration. If you were to go fishing, you would, you would take your bait, and let's say you're using live bait, and you're fishing out in the ocean, and outside of San Diego Bay on the ocean over maybe the kelp patties by Point Loma, you, you would want to hook your bait in such a way as to use the bait to look most natural. You wouldn't want to take your bait if you're using live bait and just kind of jab it 10 times and throw it in the water. The, the, the fish that you're trying to catch wouldn't, wouldn't take that bait. So you want to make the bait as, as nice and as, as lifelike as you possibly can. And you want to keep it alive as long as it is possible so that it will be attractive to the other fish that are around it. You go with a junior angler and sometimes I look at their bait and I'm like, holy cow, I can't believe any fish caught that. There must be a famine in the kelp patties that you actually caught a fish because your bait is so poorly done. But the, that's the idea here. You use bait and you make the bait presentable so that it will attract what you're trying to do. And the tongue of the natural man uses deceit. He, he refines his deceit. He refines his con, as we sometimes say. He's continually re refining what they are doing so that they can get what they want. People will use flattery, manipulation, softness, anger, all of the above, some of the above, simply to get what they want. And this is illustrated repeatedly throughout the scripture about the deceitful heart of man. But I don't think it's any more clearly presented than in Genesis chapter 27 when Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, whose father is Isaac, Jacob wanted a blessing that was promised to his brother. And so he goes in and he talks to his, his dad when his dad's about to die and he deceives his father into giving him the blessing that was reserved for his older brother Esau. And his name literally means, uh, Jacob's name literally means supplanter or deceiver. He is a deceitful individual. That is the heart of all mankind. Not only is man deceitful, notice verse number 13, the poison of asp is under their lips. Fallen man is deadly. We all know what poison is. We know what an asp is. An asp is a very poisonous snake. Hard to define exactly which one it is, but it seems like it's of extreme, an extremely poisonous snake. And the asp got its name from the way that it would hiss, for lack of a better term. And the poison of asp, or of this very poisonous snake, is under the lips of the natural man. They're very venomous, destructive. Psalm 140, verse number 3, said they have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips. Selah. 
National Geographic says that the black mamba is often considered to be the uh, world's deadliest snake. Now, there I told the great 30 service, I'm not a snake person. If you disagree with that, don't come to me. I won't have any idea what you're talking about. Please email National Geographic. I'm sure they would appreciate that. But I have no idea. This is what I know about the black mamba. It can grow up to 14 feet in length. It can slither at 12.5 miles an hour, and their venom can kill you in 20 minutes or less. 20 minutes or less. If you live in sub-Saharan Africa, it is thousands of people die every year because of anti-venom and it's expensive. They can't get, they don't have access to anti-venom. And that I am told by National Geographic that an estimated 30,000 people die every year from snake bites in that region of the world. 30,000 people. The poison of asp is under their lips. The tongue of the unsaved man, and sometimes even the believer, brings sudden and unexpected death. There's the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Unfortunately, that's probably not true in any of our life. I would argue that's not true in any of our life, that words stay with us long after physical pain has long been forgotten. Proverbs 18.21, the scripture says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Fallen man is deadly with his words. This is a message really to people who don't know Christ, but believers, can I admonish us this morning that death and life are in the power of your tongue as well? The words that you say to your spouse, your children, your co-workers, people that you're around, death and life are in the power of the tongue? You say, well, I'll never say anything negative. Sometimes not saying anything negative means to endorse bad behavior. And sometimes we're called to speak the truth in love. But, but death and life can be, in, it not can be, are in the power of the tongue. How many of us in this room this morning have ever said something to somebody and we've watched their back hunch over and we've watched our words be a little bit more painful than they should have been and, and, and we've hurt people with our words. I'm as guilty as anybody in this room. And how many of us have said encouraging things that build people up and help people and encourage folks? We want to do that. That's how the Christian is supposed to live. I just want to apply this verse to a second to the believer who's come this morning that your words have a tremendous impact on those around you and there can be poison in the mouth of the follower of Jesus Christ. Now he's not talking about lostness or he is talking to lost people but we can apply this to the believer that your tongue can be destructive. That's what he says in verse number 14. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The natural man is not only deadly, but his mouth, our 10th indictment, is filled with cursing and bitterness. Cursing, you say, oh, does he mean curse words? Yes. Are you saying Christians shouldn't cuss? Yes. For those of you that are wondering, yes, Christians shouldn't cuss. Well, everybody I work with cusses. What a greater way to be a bright light in a dark world. I was talking to one of our men who's deployed right now in Bahrain. He called me on Tuesday. I had such a great conversation with him. And he said, Pastor, pray for me. Cursing is everywhere right now. That's all that's going on in my shop. That's all that I hear. Pray that I can keep my testimony because I don't want to fall prey to that. Though the cursing here is not specifically curse words, though we could make that application and not be erroneous in so doing. The cursing here is more than just that, though that is included. But it's desiring for the worst, the worst for a person, and making that desire public through open criticism and defamation. This could be when a wife publicly defames her husband to a group of friends. Oh, I'm just sharing a burden. No, you're defaming your spouse. Well, if you had to live with him, you would too. Yeah, but I didn't choose to live with him. And I'm not saying you don't need prayer and you don't need counseling, but blowing him up at the local Starbucks at a women's gossip session is not what God intended. Or a Christian husband blaming, cursing, and wanting bad things to happen to his wife. What about when a Christian publicly defames their church? 
gossips about their church? What, what kind of deceit is there? What kind of poison is there? Who would want to come to Christ when people sit around and talk bad about the church that God has blessed them with? At best, you're acting like an unbeliever. At best, you're acting like a deadly unbeliever. Deadly. One whose words bring death. To the unbeliever, the person who doesn't know Christ, your words are death. A believer can act that way, and many do. What about Christians who decry political leaders they can't stand? It's a common phrase in our country right now, and I don't, I don't know a whole lot of people who are excited about the current administration. I'm not yelling. If you are, we could talk about it. I mean no disrespect for anything in the moment, though there's tremendous disagreement for the direction our country is headed. I mean no disrespect. But any number of Christians in our world are wearing shirts that say, let's go Brandon which would become euphemistic for a very pejorative word about a, and, and phrase about our president. And Christians are like, oh, that's so awesome. Oh, that's so funny. No, I would say that that's a mouthful of cursing. Are you saying we shouldn't do it? Well, no, I'm saying God's saying you shouldn't do it. Oh, I find that hard. Okay, so that, 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 nobody said it's going to be easy whose mouth is full of cursing. To want destruction to come on somebody. Well, but do you not? Yeah, I do. Have you? I have. Did you read? I did. And you're still saying we shouldn't? I am. Well, what gives you the right to say we shouldn't? Well, I don't really have any personal right. I'm just telling you what God's word means. Whose mouth is full of cursing. And bitterness. Bitterness is, in this phrase, this word bitterness means openly expressed emotional hostility against the enemy. Against the enemy. That's bitterness. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews to be careful to, to pluck up every root of bitterness. The natural man's mouth is filled with cursing. The unsaved man's mouth is filled with cursing and bitterness. The unsaved woman's mouth is filled with cursing and bitterness. The conversation of the lost. Their words are spiritually dead. They are deceitful. They are deadly. And their mouth is filled with cursing and bitterness. Look at verse number 15. The conduct of the natural man. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace, of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The last three charges deal with the natural man's conduct. The ungodly are by nature, look at this, murderous. They are swift or quick to shed blood. To murder. Robert Haledale, a Scottish evangelist from the 19th century, said the most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species as to appease their hunger as man destroys of his fellows to satiate his ambition, his revenge, or his greed. Mankind destroys mankind. Men kill men, women kill women, men kill women, and women kill men to satiate their ambition, revenge, or greed. And we're quick to do it. You say, well, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, let's just think real quickly about our country. Just this year, September 1st, an article, a news organization from Chicago said at, the, at summer's end, Chicago's murders are outpacing any year in a quarter century. As summer winds down, the article says Chicago is on pace to have its highest annual murder tally in a quarter century. Through Tuesday night or August the 31st, according to Chicago PD figures, the year had so far generated 524 murders, 3% more to date than 2020. Chicago appears to be headed towards its highest annual homicide count since 1996 when murder totaled 796 at the tail end of the crime wave fueled by the crack cocaine epidemic. Violent crime in San Diego is up. 
According to KFMB News Service, San Diego violent crime reported in the first half of 2021 increased 14% over last year. In my conversations with police officers, they're saying they've never seen it like this. From January to June of 2021, the violent crime rate was 3.64 per 1,000 of population, the second highest over the past 10 years. And as, a, as an aside, it's a crying shame that some people want to defund the police and put fewer cops on the street. Why? Because it's only going to add to the crime wave. According to a researcher, Arnold Barnett of MIT, a child born in, uh, today in any one of the 50 largest cities in the U.S., has the chance of one in 50 of being murdered. Dr. Barnett estimated that a baby born in the 1980s was more likely to be murdered than an American soldier in World War II was of being killed in combat. Why is that? Because man is by nature murderous. I mean, in San Diego, we had guys just in the month of June, two guys were yelling at each other over a red light and a guy got out of his car, walked up to a a tourist that was in San Diego, pulled out a gun and shot him in the chest and killed him. Over who got to go first at a red light? Well, why is that? Because the natural inclination of man is swiftness to shed blood. Not only is man murderous, see verse number 16, the destruction or the destructiveness of mankind, destruction and misery are in their ways. Destruction is devastation that you're not able to recover from. It's, it's like breaking a cheap vase. I, I remember one time I bought a vase for my wife at Dollar General and I've broken, I've dropped vases that were expensive vases and they'd break in three or four pieces. You could have them repaired. But I bought one that for like a dollar at Dollar General. Why? Well, because it was a dollar. And I dropped it, and that thing shattered into about 10 million pieces, turned into powder. It was destroyed. That's the idea of the word destruction. Devastated, totally and completely annihilated, unable to recover from. Mankind is destructive. They abuse, they vandalize, they steal. Misery. Suffering is in their way. They destroy things and they are destroyed. Verse number 17, and maybe the most powerful of all, the way of peace have they not known. Word peace here means harmonious relations and freedom from dispute. There are other words for peace that would refer to peace with God. We could apply that. But it's really here, peace with man, inner peace with man. They are not at peace with their fellow man because they are not at peace with God. We live today, 2021, October 17th, 2021, is the most polarizing time to be alive in probably the last hundred plus years. There's no civil dialogue, no agreeable disagreement. Folks wake up ticked off at each other, go to bed ticked off at each other. And if you weren't ticked off at each other, all you gotta do is read your Twitter feed or get on Facebook and you will find yourself angry in a matter of minutes. The natural man, the unsaved man cannot be at peace with his fellow man. And this is, I mean, God's really given me some insight into this, not insight that's not available to anybody else, just illuminated what this verse means. There's some people that like a year ago, I was like, man, why is this person just so contrary? Why do they argue about everything? Why are they upset about everything? Why does everything tick them off? Why are they always trying to stir something up? I mean, what's going on in their heart that they would want to do it? Well, it's verse number 17. They don't know peace. That's why the Christian seeks for peace. We, we look for peace. That's why you're in a conflict. You want to be in conflict if you are with a godly Christian who will seek peace. But there's a boatload of people. The world, the unsaved man cannot really be at peace. So they can, they can talk about peace. They can talk about getting along. They can, they can talk about civil uh, civility one with another. But in their heart, this is what the scripture is saying, there is no peace. 
Get them behind closed doors. Turn off the camera. Don't record anything. And you'll hear aggressive animosity towards people that they disagree with. Look inside the darkness of their own heart and this is what you will see. People who are not at peace. That's the state of lostness. Some of you are here today and you don't know Christ. And, and you're going, I just want to be at peace with people. So, if I can be so candid as to say, you will never find true lasting peace across the board apart from repentance and faith in Christ alone. You cannot. It's impossible. But pastor, I'm a nice dude. Yeah, you might be a nice dude, but you're not at peace, the peace that God wants to offer to everyone because the peace that God offers to everyone is a peace that can love enemies and do good to them that hate you and to pray for them who are in Washington, D.C. and despitefully use you and pray for them that persecute you and pray for them who say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's the peace that God offers. I know, because you're the natural man. And it's unavailable to the natural man. It can be imitated by the believer because the believer doesn't surrender to the Lord, which is probably where some of you are this morning. Matter of fact, that's why sometimes when people go to church, pastors know if you want to rile the crowd up, just start talking about politics, and you can get the whole crowd on your side. This is not the passage to rile the crowd up. Matter of fact, this is not the passage to rile the pastor up. Other than to say, Lord, why'd you put that in there? Couldn't you have gone some other direction? They have no peace. Well, why don't they? Well, verse number 18, because there's no fear of God before their eyes. The reason that you don't get saved and come to Christ is because you just don't fear God. I don't say that to be hurtful. The same is true. You don't understand that you're really facing him as the judge. But you say, well, where do you see him as the judge? Well, look at the verdict in verse number 19 and 20. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. The law is talking to people who are subject to the law. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Here's what Paul is saying. You're under the law if you reject Christ. You're under all 613 commandments if you reject Christ. You are without hope if you reject Christ. You are under the law. And you say, well, well, but God and I will come to an agreement when I stand before him. No, no, no. The decision has already been made if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. What's the decision? That you've already missed the mark. Well, why? Because you are evil and ignorant and rebellious and defiant and useless spiritually and contaminated and spiritually dead and spiritually deceitful and spiritually deadly. Your mouth is filled with cursing and bitterness. By nature, you're murderous. Uh, you, you, you are destroyed and you have no peace and you don't fear God at all. And, and so because of that, when you stand before God, you are already found guilty. Well, I'll just try to prove how good I am. Bro, do you not get it? You can't out overcome this level of, of badness. It's pre-written. And that's why you're judged, verse number 10, by the word of God and verse number 19, by the just God and we're all guilty before him. That's why he says in verse number 20, look at verse number 20, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge, the gnosis, the understanding of sin. The whole point of the law is to prove that you are a sinner. It cannot justify you. The law will never point out that you are righteous. The law points out that you and I are in desperate need of his grace. And we'll look at verse 21 through the end of the chapter next week. But notice what 21 says. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. And there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God or missed God's mark of perfection. But we are justified, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in 
Christ Jesus. We are not justified by our actions. We are not justified by our words. We are not justified by our thoughts. We are not justified by our benevolence. We are not justified by our kindness. We are justified by the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus alone. Well, how, verse 25, whom God, Jesus, God is who he's talking about, whom God has set forth to be the propitiation, the substitutionary payment through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Here's what he's saying. You are justified, made free, made right, not because of anything you have done, but because of Christ's death on the cross and you are justified and made free when you put your faith and trust in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not in your goodness, not in your efforts, not in your kindness, but through Christ alone. You say, well, Pastor, I, I don't, this is kind of a negative message. Friend, I would submit to you that truth is never negative, but sometimes it is very hard. And no doubt this passage is hard. But the difficulty of the passage and the inspection of the passage and the mirror with which it allows us to see ourselves apart from Christ does not mean that God is not gracious. It means the exact opposite, that God is extremely gracious for allowing us to see ourselves apart from the salvific work or the saving work of Jesus Christ. In one of his books, Chuck Colson writes about meeting a businessman whom he calls Mr. Abercrombie. Mr. Abercrombie had invited Chuck Colson. Colson was a, a very famous Christian apologist, worked in prisons all over America and really all over the world. He had been in prison himself. He was one of the few arrested during the Watergate scandal of our country. While in prison, Chuck became a Christian, a faithful servant of the Lord. Colson was known for his intellectual capabilities and faculties, one of the smartest men to ever walk the halls of the West Wing and one of the smartest advisors any president in history had had, though not agreed with all the time, still his intellectual prowess is legendary. He's invited to this businessman's Bible study by a man named Mr. who he calls Mr. Abercrombie and they're there at the Bible study and Colson is giving his talk and somewhere in the talk he talks about the fact that all men are sinners and he uses this phrase that apart from Christ we are totally depraved. At the end there he felt some uncomfortableness he says when he said that and at the end there was a time for questions and one man in a very expensive heart shafter and Mark's suit, several thousand dollars the suit was, sitting in a very posh leather chair, said to Chuck, he said, you don't really believe that we are sinners, do you? I mean, you're too sophisticated to be one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers, aren't you? Intelligent people don't go around with that backcountry preacher stuff. Colson replied, I, yes, sir, I, I believe that we are desperately sinful. What's inside each of us is pretty ugly. In fact, we deserve hell and would get it, but for the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Mr. Abercrombie, who organized the event and invited Colson, was distressed and said, well, uh, I don't know about that. I'm a good person. I've, I have been all my life. I fatigue myself. I exhaust myself doing good works, giving money, helping people. The room was really quiet. Colson replied to Abercrombie with this. He said, I hate to say this, for you certainly won't invite me back. You are, for all of your good works, further away from Christ than the men I minister to in prison who know that they are sinners. It was very quiet. Some people coughed in awkwardness. Others rattled their coffee cups. Having been in those situations, I understand the nervousness that was in the room. Mr. Abercrombie, who designed the luncheon with these, I mean, you're talking heavy hitters in the business world, billionaires in the room. Colson goes on. He knows he's got one shot. And he said, in fact, gentlemen, if you think about it, you're more like Adolf Hitler than you are Jesus Christ. 
And there was a stony silence. I'm more like Hitler than Christ. Someone changed the subject. The lunch eventually ended and Chuck Colson was preparing to leave. At Mr. Abercrombie took him by the arm and said, Chuck, don't you need to make that phone call? You told me before the lunch started, when we were done, you need to make a call. And Chuck said, oh, I'll be fine. I'll make it later. And Mr. Abercrombie said, no, 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 I want you to make the call. And Chuck realized that he wanted to be alone. And so Chuck said, yeah, thank you. Let's go make the call. So they went to an empty office and, and they made the call. And after Chuck got done, Abercrombie said to Chuck Colson, he said, Chuck, I don't have what you have. You have something special that I don't have. And Chuck said, you're right, you don't have it. But you can. God's touching your heart right now, and if you'll repent of your sin, recognize you sin against God, and trust only Jesus to save you, you can be saved. And very wealthy Abercrombie said, no, 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 maybe some other time. I've, I've got too many things going on right now. And so Chuck Colson pressed him a little bit and encouraged him to come to Christ. And moments later, Mr. Abercrombie asked forgiveness, knelt down at a chair and asked forgiveness for his sin and asked God, Christ to come into, heart, into his heart and to save him. Colson concludes, Martin Luther was right. The ultimate proof of the sinner is that he doesn't know his own sin. Our job is to make him see it. Dear friend, my job today is to help you understand that if you don't know Christ, you are spiritually ignorant, rebellious, defiant, spiritually useless, contaminated, spiritually dead, deceitful, deadly. You have a mouth filled with cursing and bitterness. By nature, you're murderous, you're destructive, and you have no peace because you don't fear God. Well, pastor, what can be done? You can understand you're a sinner and these are, the, these are the charges levied against you and you cannot respond not guilty. Verse 19 and 20, the only response you will have when you stand before God is guilty unless, verse number 24, you are justified freely by the grace of Christ. Freely means it didn't cost him anything or it doesn't cost you anything. It cost him everything and you must put your faith and trust in Christ alone to save you. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, get saved. If you're here today and you're like, but people think I'm saved. Don't worry about that. This is the indictment. Get saved. Come to Jesus. God is drawing you. Surrender to his drawing today. Submit to his will today. Don't worry about what a spouse thinks. Don't worry about what a friend thinks. Don't worry about what I think. Worry about what Jesus thinks and come to Jesus today. He is calling you. He is working on your heart today. Accept him today. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. We look forward to seeing you.